Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. Did you know that CRST is celebrating its 20th anniversary? On this episode of our corresponding podcast, we kick off this special anniversary year with an overview of some of the top articles from our January issue, focusing on global practice patterns in ophthalmology. We collaborated with surgeons from around the world and compiled an extensive overview of technologies, techniques, and preferences in modern cataract and refractive surgery. I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST, and you're listening to CRST, the podcast. In the January issue, we pieced together contributions from nearly 50 surgeons worldwide to showcase surgeons' thoughts on IOLs, immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery, essential and complementary technologies, preferred presbyopia correcting strategies, in-office cataract surgery, medical training, and COVID-19. In the interest of time, today's episode will feature article snippets about immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery and medical training. Are you for or against the use of immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery? Michael Patterson from Eye Centers of Tennessee sits on one side of the debate, and Christopher Liu from Sussex Eye Hospital in the United Kingdom on the other. Let's listen to their reasoning. First up, Dr. Patterson. Aren't we all fiduciaries to some degree? If the current pandemic has taught me one thing, it is that the Eagles hit song, Get Over It, is as relevant today as when it was released in 1994. By and large, doctors like to feel important, and for understandable reasons, but aren't the lives of their staff and patients even more important? As the father of three, soon to be four, I feel a desire to do better for others than for myself. This is my main reason for not regularly offering immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery. Perhaps the most undervalued factor in a medical practice's success is a competent and driven staff. I co-own a practice with more than 140 employees across eight locations. During the current pandemic, my fiduciary responsibility to my staff is greater than ever. When the COVID-19 pandemic started, I watched practices around mine crumble as they laid off employees and did everything they could to protect and serve the owners of those companies. We refused to buckle and have made it our priority to continue supporting and providing for our staff and 13 doctors. In the United States, Immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery involves a financial hit to the practice so that the surgery on the first and second eyes may be performed on the same day. That alone raises an eyebrow. The investments in technology to become a premium practice, in staffing, and in supplies for the second eye remain the same with immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery as with routine next day simultaneous bilateral cataract surgery. Surely no one is performing a cataract procedure on a second eye with the same surgical equipment as was used on the first. When occasionally it is necessary for one of my patients to undergo cataract surgery on both eyes on the same day, that patient is taken out of the operating room between surgeries and the entire room is changed over before surgery on the second eye is performed. No shortcuts are taken. The cost incurred are therefore the same as with next day bilateral cataract surgery and the practice receives 50% of the revenue. A practice's staff presumably depends on their paychecks, so they will appreciate if, it, if the owners take their fiduciary responsibility to the practice seriously. 
The staff would also probably like the profit margin to be as high as possible so that their jobs are secure at a time when job security is difficult to maintain. I am uncertain how anyone who wants to provide for their staff and their staff members' families can reasonably say that immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery is in the best interest of their company. Without cash on hand to pay the staff, no cataract surgery will occur in the first place. The following is a true story. A patient I will call John in this article was referred to me for cataract surgery. He underwent successful cataract surgery on the first eye, and his uncorrected visual acuity was 20-20 at one-week follow-up. By day nine, the uncorrected visual acuity was hand motions. The anterior chamber was full of cell, and the diagnosis was endophthalmitis. A retina specialist operated on the patient. After a four-week recovery period, uncorrected visual acuity was 20-30. The retina doctor cleared the patient to undergo cataract surgery on his contralateral eye. Preoperatively, I explained the risk and benefits of the procedure to the patient. Although I typically prescribe no antibiotic drops pre- or postoperatively, I instructed this patient to administer oral antibiotics preoperatively and topical antibiotics pre- and postoperatively. Additionally, antibiotics were administered intraoperatively by intracameral injection. In colloquial English, I threw the kitchen sink at John. Uncorrected visual acuity was 20-20 at his one-week follow-up. I patted myself on the back and told John that I thought we'd gotten lucky. On post-operative day nine, I received a note from a retina specialist informing me that one of my patients had developed endophthalmitis. It was John. He'd known the routine and had gone straight to the retina specialist without even calling me. I couldn't believe my eyes when I read that note. At first, I thought the note on John's first eye must have been sent to me again by mistake. On closer inspection, I realized the note was indeed about his second eye. Lightning had struck twice, so to speak. Occam's razor says that a person can have only one diagnosis, but Hickam's dictum says patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. This case was enough for me. Had this bilateral complication occurred after immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery, it would have debilitated the patient for at least a month. I can't imagine that a retina surgeon would perform bilateral vitrectomies for endophthalmitis. One of the eyes probably would have been neglected, or possibly worse. I understand the rationale that immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery could be easier for patients because, for example, it requires less travel, but is immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery truly better for our patients? It simply is not an option I prefer. Do I perform same-day bilateral cataract surgery occasionally? Sure, but for the benefit of my patients and staff, I will not be adopting immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery into routine practice anytime soon. Now up, Dr. Liu. As the global pandemic continues, the apprehension some ophthalmologists feel about performing ISBCS is slowly dissipating. The main reason. Of course, is that this approach reduces the number of visits, both pre- and post-operative, that are required of patients. But before deciding to implement ISBCS into your practice, it would be wise to weigh the benefits and drawbacks of the procedure, and to understand which patients typically do best with ISBCS. COVID-19. Is causing untold human suffering and challenging current healthcare systems. It has forced practices to take a long look at their processes and procedures, and in many ways, change how patient care is administered. 
Traditional teaching follows the premise that same-day cataract surgery can cause bilateral blindness through catastrophic complications, including endophthalmitis and cystoid macroedema. Updated guidance from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, however, recommends considering ISBCS for routine cases. Further, during the pandemic, some areas of the world have seen up to 45% patient acceptance of ISBCS. Under National Institute for Health and Care Excellence guidance, patients should be considered for ISBCS in the following situations. The presence of bilaterally visually significant cataracts, eyes at low risk of complications, patients with a low risk of complications, patients for whom the procedure is not expected to be prolonged, and those who need general anesthesia. ISBCS is not recommended for patients in a variety of situations. Those with lenticular abnormalities, including pseudoexfoliation, lens subluxation, phacodonesis, intraocular inflammation, or previous ocular trauma. Those at increased risk of glaucoma or retinal detachment, and those with eyes that are at risk of biometry error. Surgeons should only consider performing ISBCS if they have a foundational understanding of ISBCS. If there is strong cohesion between the surgeon and OR team, and if the hospital has a good track record with ISBCS. Surgeons who are new to performing ISBCS should use this approach only for routine, low-risk cases. When ISBCS is offered, a description of the procedure must be included in the informed consent. Patients must also understand that the decision to proceed with surgery on the second eye occurs only upon satisfactory completion of surgery in the first eye. If the surgery on the first eye is prolonged or a complication occurs, then surgery on the second eye would be aborted. Finally, ISBCS is only safe when the two eyes are treated as completely separate operations. Between the procedures, the surgeon and team must scrub and change gowns and gloves, and a separate instrument cart from a different sterilization cycle must be used. Anything entering the second eye must come from different manufacturers or bear different batch numbers from what was used for the first eye. Some critics of ISBCS argue that use of the same-day technique in tandem with routine cataract surgery creates two coups of patients, those awaiting surgery on their first eye and those waiting for ISBCS. It is true that there will be an initial increase in the number of patients on the waiting list. After a few months, however, patients will not need to return for cataract surgery on their second eye and the waiting list will be reduced thanks to the increased efficiency of ISBCS. During the COVID-19 pandemic, efficient patient flow and the simplified patient journey have been crucial 
reducing the duplication of steps, or eliminating unnecessary steps, as can be achieved with ISBCS, can help to enhance not only safety but also the patient's experience. Now we'll delve into medical training. It was fascinating to me to learn about the variety of setups across the world, some of which are completely free to students. Today, we'll hear from Nisha Chada from Mount Sinai New York Eye and Ear Infirmary and Ricardo Vinciguerra from the Humanitas San Pio Hospital in Milan, Italy on the framework of medical training in their countries and the importance of fellowships. First, let's hear what Dr. Chada has to say. In March 2020, an email message with the subject line, Medical Student Clerkships Cancelled Effective Immediately, popped into my inbox. Elective surgery, including cataract surgery, was also cancelled, and New York City, where I practice, was shut down as cases of COVID-19 surged. As an ophthalmologist and a medical educator, I was challenged not only with abruptly transitioning to virtual patient care, but also with adapting educational strategies to maintain a high-quality experience for trainees, particularly medical students hoping to match into ophthalmology. Although COVID-19 certainly affected medical education, my community of educators collaborated in real time to find rapid solutions. When the volume of COVID-19 cases began surging in the United States, medical student clerkships and visiting rotations were canceled jeopardizing the timeline of graduation for fourth-year medical students and their residency planning. At the residency and fellowship levels, the cancellation of elective surgery significantly reduced surgical volume and paused job searches. Traditional networking opportunities, such as with visiting grand round speakers or during research presentations at conferences, were also put on hold. These are just a few examples of how COVID-19 negatively affected medical education. As the challenges snowballed, collaborative efforts to find solutions developed rapidly. Social media was a key means of collaboration. There are numerous examples of successful collaborative efforts, including the following. One group of recently matched students hosted a webinar to advise prospective applicants on navigating matching during the pandemic. Faculty, residents, and medical students began to connect and develop both formal and informal mentorship. Local program directors and medical student educators started meeting regularly over Zoom to discuss educational challenges. Interinstitutional didactic series were developed in many regions and more wet labs were conducted with increased faculty mentorship to allow residents to develop their surgical skills while elective surgery was paused. And at my institution, our program director started a humanities series that allowed residents to reflect on their experiences working in the COVID-19 units. Medical educators across the country began developing and sharing virtual ophthalmology curricula, and many programs offered virtual ophthalmology electives as an alternative for students whose visiting electives were canceled. In time, the difficult decision was made to conduct residency interviews virtually. In response, many residency programs hosted virtual open houses to allow students to learn about the programs and to meet faculty and residents. The collaborations and innovations in medical education that continue to occur are heartening. Once the current public health crisis ends, I am confident that we will emerge stronger and that many of the educational practices we've cultivated will endure. Now, let's hear from Dr. Vinciguerra. 
Ophthalmology residency in Italy is not only medical but surgical as well. In some ways, this design provides those of us who completed residencies in Italy with an advantage over those who completed residencies in countries that do not include surgical rotations. The problem in Italy is that not every resident gets the same type of surgical experience and that some do not get any surgical experience at all. It is highly dependent on the program and the faculty. After completing a four-year ophthalmology residency in Italy, the next logical step, I believe, is fellowship. Fellowships are not mandatory, but to my mind, they should be, especially for individuals who want to specialize in areas like cornea, glaucoma, and vitro retinal surgery. How else are you to truly prepare for all of the procedure required in anterior and posterior segment surgery? How else can you experience full-on what you are going to do for the rest of your life? In Italy and many other European countries, there are no real fellowship programs. So those who are interested in pursuing one, look abroad. One popular fellowship destination is in the United Kingdom. I completed two fellowships, one glaucoma and one cornea, in Liverpool. Both fellowships took place at referral centers, which provided me with the opportunity to perform complex surgeries. It also helped me to decide to pursue cornea surgery as a specialty. Another benefit to looking abroad for fellowship is that it exposes you to other cultures, other languages, other people, and other landscapes. It helps you to grow not only as a doctor, but also as a human, through the experiences you share with colleagues and other residents of the country in which you are living. In many cases, including mine, fellowships are found through referrals of word-of-mouth recommendations. Fellowships are not in mainstream practice in most of Europe, and many of those available are in large hospitals. This is different from in the United States, for instance, where many private practice offer specialized fellowships. Hospital-based fellowships have advantages and disadvantages. On the one hand, they expose you to a variety of surgeries. On the other, it can take much longer to learn things and there is a limited amount of technology. If you look at the credentials of many of the rising stars in ophthalmology in Europe, you will notice that most of them have done a fellowship abroad, usually in the United States or in the United Kingdom. I think there is a large unmet need in Europe for more fellowships and it is something that as a union, we should think about improving. I enjoyed working with so many new ophthalmologists from around the world to put the January issue together. And CRST is going to build on that momentum with our new Global Perspectives column, an initiative we're undertaking to help eye care professionals keep up to date and informed about ophthalmic practice patterns throughout the world. There is no better time than the present to expand our scope of coverage, as we have recently been reminded by the significant increase in virtual communication and education, how much we have to learn from one another, and how important it is to stay connected. Alongside our chief medical editors and the editorial staff, I couldn't be more excited to leave CRST into its 20th year in print and to expand CRST's coverage across the globe. Until next time.